This is an ABC podcast. All I ever knew and all the kids around me knew were the sort of the, the few streets that we grew up on. And so we didn't really have much sort of access to the world outside of us. And that's one of the things that poverty does, I think. This is The Book Show. Hello, I'm Claire Nichols. To celebrate Booker season, I am bringing you interviews with some of the previous winners of the Booker Prize, which is arguably the most significant writing prize for authors of fiction in English. Douglas Stewart is a Scottish writer based in New York. He won the Booker for his debut novel back in 2020, a wonderful book called Shuggy Bane. The book is set in 1980s Glasgow, where we meet a family struggling with poverty, addiction and violence. And at its heart, it's a complicated love story between a child, Shuggy, and his mum, Agnes. The book actually opens with a little bit of a question. So we see this 16-year-old boy, and he is living by himself in a rented bedsit with other men, but the men are all sort of uh, pretty much discarded by society. And so he is in the bedsit by himself and we're kind of, we wonder why this 16 year old boy is really living by, uh, living on his own. And we actually say in the book, you know, he has no family of his own. And so really the book takes you through the rest of that story uh, to sort of answer where his father is, where his siblings are, where his mother is. But at the very beginning, you're just seeing this 16 year old boy trying to survive. Yeah. And and then, as you say, we go back to 1980s Glasgow, we meet his family, and this is a family living in poverty. There's alcoholism, there's family violence. Why were you compelled to write about these particular lives, Douglas? Well, I think first and foremost, because uh, this is the world that I come from. I was a young boy that grew up in 1980s Glasgow, and I came from a very sort of honest working class family. All the men, all the women in my family went out to work, uh, and all the families around me did too. But by the time the sort of the Thatcher government came to power, and by the early 80s, um, unemployment in the city shot up into the 20%. Um, And so it put a lot of sort of men and women out of work, especially the men. And with that came sort of ushered into the city a lot of sort of uh, um, addiction problems, some violence problems, obviously a lot of poverty. And it really affected people's physical health and also their mental health for, for a long time. I can imagine, Douglas, growing up in that environment as a queer kid would be particularly challenging. Yeah, it was certainly um, a difficult time. I think it was a difficult time to be queer, but I think Glasgow is generally a very sort of accepting cosmopolitan city, but I think it's the combination of being queer, also growing up on a housing scheme um, and being poor. Uh, You know, all I ever knew and all the kids around me knew were the sort of the the few streets that we grew up upon. And so we didn't really have much sort of access to the world outside of us. And that's one of the things that poverty does, I think. But it was also a very sort of hyper-masculine time and a hyper-masculine city. Obviously, it was an industrial city, so its fortunes were made in uh, shipbuilding, in steel, in coal. And so that meant that the men sort of were very masculine men. And then for a young boy like me or a young boy like Shuggy, who is just effeminate and a little bit precocious, and he's just seen by everyone around him as being no right. They don't sort of attribute any sexuality to him. He's a kid, but they just see him as being sort of just too feminine. And that, in a way, is sort of um, a form of misogyny, I think. You know, it's a sort of, it's a homophobia that really stems and 
in, in its roots from being, why would this young boy want to be like a woman or want to be feminine in that way? And so it was just an incredibly difficult time. But it was also a difficult time to be a man, to be a heterosexual man, because there's a very narrow way that, that men were allowed to be. And, and that was sort of very masculine, uh, very hard if any trouble came to them, uh, hard drinking, hard living. And that's a, that's a difficult way to be too. Douglas, you said it wasn't an easy time to be a man in 1980s Glasgow, but I'm not sure it was much easier for the women. Uh, A lot of this book focuses on the relationship between Shuggy and his mum, Agnes, who is an extremely complicated woman. Can you introduce us to Agnes? Yes. Uh, So Agnes is actually the heart of the book. Um, And Agnes Bain is a very sort of proud, uh, hardworking mother of three children. Uh, She is incredibly beautiful and she sort of models herself on a Glaswegian Elizabeth Taylor. But Agnes is a very sort of proud and vain woman and she is really that sort of model of when really even when there's nothing in the cupboard or when there's trouble at home, she never sort of steps over the front door without having her face full of makeup and her hair done and really the best clothes she can afford. And so it's that sort of vanity that begins to sort of separate her from the people around her or that sort of um, empty pride. But Agnes um, starts off with a lot of hope in the book, although she is sort of chafing at the tightness of her life or at the the situation of her life. But after she is sort of abandoned or brutally sort of abandoned by her husband, Big Shug, she begins to descend into alcoholism. And it's really sort of her three children, Catherine being the oldest daughter, Leek the middle son, and then the the sort of the center of the book, Shuggy, who is the baby of the family, who stay by their mother's side and try to sort of save her from her addiction. And it is Shuggy who stays by her side the longest. Mm. This is your debut novel, which is really incredible. Uh, And before this, you worked in fashion, Douglas. (laughs) <laughs> That's right. Yeah, Shogi is my debut novel. Actually, I've been working on it for about 10 or 12 years now. And, you know, part of that was because I had to work around, as you say, I had a day job. I'm actually by trade a knitter, which is a very Scottish thing to be. But uh, that brought me out to New York and to work for really large fashion companies out here. And But the reason why Shuggy took 10 years is because New York's a very demanding city, you know, and fashion's a very demanding job. And so I had to steal a lot of time to write. Writing is my my main passion uh, and is actually my career now. But, you know, I would write on the subway in the morning. I would write uh, sort of in the very late nights when I got home from work. And I loved nothing more than actually flying to Hong Kong uh, with my job because it gave me 16 hours on a plane just to sit down and take notes and write dialogue and just think about my characters. Um, But also part of the reason why the book took uh, 10 years is because I found an enormous comfort in the world. Um, I wanted to spend as much time with the characters as I could and sort of just be there with them. So I was kind of loath to let them go and I didn't want to I didn't want to finish in a funny way. Um, But but that's the story behind the book. In a way, was it connecting back with home when you're living a long way away? Yeah, I think that's absolutely it. And not only just sort of connecting with a place and a time, but also connecting with a sort of set of circumstances. As I said, I was, um, I grew up the queer son of a single mother, but my own mother also, uh, you know, all my memories of her involve uh, alcoholism. It wasn't necessarily that she was uh, drinking every single day, but just sort of alcohol was always on the landscape of her life. And when I was about 16, my mother actually succumbed to her illness. She 
uh, she died of her alcoholism. And so I think in a lot of ways, part of creating the book was my ability to go back in time and spend time with her. And there's nothing more healing than actually writing fiction because you get to control the narrative in a way that certainly a child that's dealing with trauma cannot, you know, you can't control anything when you're actually, when you love an addicted parent. And so going back and writing the book was a way to sort of bend uh, circumstances to my will and to sort of get answers where answers really don't exist in real life. Um, and so I just enjoyed that sort of space there. Douglas Stewart. He followed Shuggy Bain and his Booker win with another devastating, glorious novel, Young Mungo. And when that book came out, I was lucky enough to speak to Douglas again. We marvelled at the difference going from releasing his first debut novel during the COVID-19 pandemic to releasing his second as a literary celebrity. <laughs> I know, I finally get to leave the house uh, after after two years. People have never seen the bottom half of me, like my <laughs> legs, or or know how tall I am. So it's, it's going to be really strange. This new book's called Young Mungo. If I remember rightly, you already had this finished before you won the booker, right? That's right, yeah. I've been writing actually for a very long time, but I was doing it mostly in private, and uh, not knowing if ever I would be published. And so Young Mungo is a book that I actually began in 2016, um, when Shuggy was already eight years into its work. He must have been on draft 16 or something. But I put Shuggy in the top corner of my desk, and I was desperate to write this this book that became Young Mungo because I had the idea for this very propulsive, plot-driven book. Um, and, and so I started it in 2016. And then I was so grateful after having won the booker that I had my second book almost uh, complete because uh, the pressure has really been something. Yeah, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to have to come up with the follow-up book you know, after being the debut novelist who won the booker. It must have been very reassuring to have this one already done. Yeah, every, every journalist says to me, so do you have the second, the difficult second album problem? You know, that was that became a recurring theme for me. And I thought to myself, ha, I'm so glad Young Mungo is finished. Uh, it might be my third album that's a bit difficult, though. We'll say we'll have to wait and see. I'll check in with you then. Um, <laughs> so this book, uh, it opens with a bruised 15-year-old boy. He's called Mungo. He's getting on a bus with a couple of strange men. Who is this kid, Mungo? Yeah, Mungo actually is a very ordinary boy. He's a working class boy growing up in the east end of Glasgow in the 1990s in Scotland. And he his family are pretty dysfunctional. They're coming apart. His father was, uh, you know, died in a tragedy when Mungo was still a baby. And his mother is is a little bit in disarray. She's She is looking to go out and make her own way in the world, having raised her three children. And so Mungo is on the brink of becoming a man and everyone around him is trying trying to raise him and trying to teach him what it is to be a man in this time and this place. And he just doesn't feel like the other lads. You know, he's he's a very gentle, very tender soul. Um, and that makes him incredibly lonely. And so he goes to the north of Scotland with these two men to learn how to hunt and camp and fish. And it's a trip that has, uh, you know, effects that ripple all the way through the book. Yeah, I couldn't believe the fact that his mum has put him on the bus with these strange men. Um, I was pretty furious about that. But, I mean, he, yeah. Mungo, um, he's got this facial tick. We know he's a beautiful boy, but he's got this facial tick and he's always scratching at his face to calm it. So his face is always scabbed or bleeding. And on top of yeah. that, he has this habit of calming himself down by 
putting things in his mouth. So he'll suck on scabs, he'll stuff clothes in his mouth, he'll bite on the windowsill. What's going on here? You know, he's a young man that has a lot of um, anxiety primarily and and a lot of uh, mental health issues that he's not able to express because, first of all, young working class men are, are never really asked in this time and place to, to talk about their fears or their hurts or their vulnerability. And so he's forced to sort of keep it very bottled up inside. And this comes out in, in sort of some physical anxiety. And a part of that actually was inspired by my own story as a young man. I had, you know, I was a very anxious kid. I was a very anxious young man. And, and I self-soothed myself a lot by really chewing on things, you know. I don't know how many remote controls for the television <laughs> I, I went through as a young man. And I was all was in trouble for it but I just found so much soothing from from really chomping down on something and I was thinking about how little we knew about mental health for men we still don't really invite working class men to discuss how they're feeling we know this through suicide rates in the UK but Mungo doesn't really have this outlet until he finds someone and until he falls in love with them. But but for the most part, he's just incredibly anxious. Yeah, and I can imagine we're thinking 1990s Glasgow. We're thinking about, you know, he's living in a housing estate. And I guess this is similar to you, Douglas. People aren't going, oh, well, we'll rush off to a series of medical appointments to try and medicalise this. Mm. That's not happening, right? That's just, yeah, that's, that's not happening. And in fact, they're a little bit wary of the doctor, I think. Uh, part of that comes from a feeling of self-worth and thinking, can I, should I be bothering this professional uh, with my problems? But it's it's a difficult time for Mungo in that way. And also because his mother is absent, uh, there's no one really looking after his physical health. And so he's very alone in it. Does Mungo know what his sexuality is? I don't think it's crossed Mungo's mind too much because he has a lot else going on in his life. Uh, that is until he meets another quite lonely young man who grew, who is also on the housing estate. But the housing estate that the two characters live on in the East End of Glasgow, uh, not only would it be very taboo for two young men to fall in love, but actually they fall in love across a sectarian divide. Mungo is a Protestant and his older brother Hamish, who is helping usher Mungo towards his you know, his adulthood and into his into his manhood is uh, the leader of the local Protestant gang on the scheme. And so when his brother starts to make a friendship with a local Catholic boy, um, that's almost the worst thing that Mungo could do. Mm, I'm getting Romeo and Juliet vibes here. Yeah, I think I think it's very much like that. After Shuggy Bane, I wanted to write a romance, but I wanted to write a romance that looked at the loneliness that, that I even experienced as a young gay man in Scotland. Um, and, and part of that was because of the lack of mobility I had about growing up in poverty. You know, my entire world was the housing estate that I grew up on. And it wasn't a time where gay people could be visible or, or be recognized. And so I felt very much like I was the only person, you know, this was pre-email, pre-internet. And so I spent my entire youth thinking, God, Maybe I'm the only person like this. And then actually trying to change that about myself. You know, I was I became my own worst oppressor in many ways because I tried to I tried to fit in with the other lads. And so I, I wrote Young Mungo, I think, to address that loneliness, but also it's a bit of wishful thinking that actually look, here's this other beautiful soul that only lives a couple of a couple of streets away. That was Douglas Stewart. And to hear more interviews with previous Booker winners, including Margaret Atwood, Bernadine Evaristo and George Saunders, make sure you're following The Book Show on the ABC Listen app. 
I'm Claire Nichols speaking to you from Wajuk Noongar Land in Perth. Take care. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. 